Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. On October 29th, I tried to cancel my subscription to the Miami Herald. Not because there's anything wrong with it, it's just I'm not getting around to reading it, and it's $15.99 a month, and I knew it was going to renew on November 1st. But when I went to the website, I found that there's no button that actually allows you to unsubscribe. You have to email customer service and just write out a message. Dear sirs. Which I don't think I've ever done in my life, just written a a message to someone asking that they cancel my subscription. It feels like 1940-fuck. Like I'm having to write to the milkman to tell him that I don't need four bottles. They then tell you in an automatic response once you've submitted your request that it'll be a few business days before they're able to process your cancellation or just get back to you in general. Sure enough, I ended up getting charged for a renewal on the first of the month, and it was a good way of grounding myself from this delusion I've been entertaining for a few days now, where I've been thinking that life in, like, mid-20th century America was so much simpler than it is today, that it would have been cooler in so many respects because it's life is slower and you can smell the roses and shit. Incidentally, I understand that this is a distinctly white person conviction. You never really hear this from people of color. But I've been reading The Black Dahlia by James Elroy. It's a crime novel set in the mid-1940s. It was adapted into a movie that was direct, one of Brian De Palma's last directorial efforts, and it starred Josh Hartnett, and Aaron Eckhart, and by the way, I really don't like Aaron Eckhart, and I'm not entirely sure why. I know that, like, like my dislike for him started with his role as Harvey Dent in The Dark Knight, which I thought was cringingly horrible, especially that courtroom scene in the beginning where a mobster pulls a gun on him, and he disarms the mobster and says something like, next time you should buy American. And then the whole courtroom, like, applauds his little violent maneuver, which incidentally, I noticed a trope in superhero movies. It is increasingly the case that, from what I've seen, that in the second-to-last confrontation that a superhero has with a villain. Usually the hero only has like two major fights with a villain in the course of a movie. One is at like the end of the first act and the other is at the end of the third. The second fight that the superhero has with the villain is usually kind of intimate and they're alone in some desolate place like a warehouse or a a field. And, and, And it's always private and intimate so they can discuss their warring philosophies. But the first fight that that they have is always, like, way out in public. And people don't run away. They stand around ooing and aahing. And I think the reason that the first fight is always held in public is so that the viewer can project themselves into the fantasy, where, like, not only are you the hero, but, like, all of your loved ones are looking on and being very impressed at your heroism. But anyways, okay, now I'm brooding on, like, why, on what a terrible actor Aaron Eckhart is, mostly because of his role in The Dark Knight, and I try to remind myself, like, the poor guy didn't write that courtroom scene. It's not his fault that he has to deliver these terrible lines. It's, like, in the best interest of his career that, you know, they offer him to be in a blockbuster movie he's to, to play Two-Face. So, yeah, he's gonna take that fucking role, he's gonna take that paycheck, he's gonna enjoy however it bolsters his star in Hollywood, and maybe, once he's financially secure, he'll, he can then, you know, spend the rest of his life doing little artsy indie movies that really, you know, give him a feeling of enrichment. Or maybe he likes doing blockbusters. I don't know. I, I'm not... It reminds me, though, that, like, back when Martin Scorsese's Irishman came out in 2019, it was, like, the first decent movie that Al Pacino had done in a long time. 
And you could tell he was really enjoying the publicity, like all the interviews, wearing his sunglasses indoors, as he is wont to do. I actually really like wearing my sunglasses indoors, but I don't do it because I'm afraid people will think I'm pretentious. I don't know why. I have this thing with a bartender who I think doesn't like me, and my girlfriend's like, why does that bother you? You're here, you, you pay, you give him money, and he gives you, it's a perfect, it's a transaction. Why do you need him to like you? Anyways, Al Pacino is doing all this publicity for The Irishman, and he's clearly loving the attention, but I don't think he's doing all the publicity because he wants to do it. I think he had to kind of go overboard with interviews because Joe Pesci adamantly refused to do any publicity at all. But so he's doing all these interviews, and a few of the interviewers, they asked this question that, like, it's fair, it's kind of rude, but they were like, hey, Mr. Pacino, you're one of the greatest actors in film history. Why have you only been doing shit movies for two decades? It's a brusque question. Like, I don't... I don't think it would be a fair question to ask someone like Steven Seagal, though, because the answer in his case for why he's only done shitty straight-to-video movies for 20 years is that he's got no talent and he's a bad human being. He's also allegedly in trouble with the Mafia, and that's why he can't come back to the United States. There's a story about Steven Seagal, incidentally, that, like, he got... He was on a movie set, and he started trading insults with, um, or just barraging insults upon uh, one of the fight coordinators, and he was telling the fight coordinator, like, you don't know what you're doing, I'm better at putting people on their butts or such and such. Anyways, they're, they're trading barbs, one thing leads to another, and they decide, kind of like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, they're gonna have a friendly match to see who can put the other one on the ground first. And so, I don't know, someone like claps whatever the fight is a go, Steven Seagal lunges at the fight coordinator, fight coordinator sort of deflects the maneuver, puts Steven Seagal in a headlock. He then proceeds to choke Steven Seagal into submission, and as Steven Seagal is slipping from consciousness, he shits his pants. I'm not sure if it's true, but I like to imagine it. Speaking of shitting one's pants on a movie set, I also heard that when John Travolta's career took off again in the late 1990s, after after he, like, he did Pulp Fiction and blew up and he was back on everyone's radar, he had, like, a monstrous appetite at the time, and he kind of struggled with his weight, although I think he kept it pretty well in check. But the rumor that I heard was that on movies like Get Shorty or The General's Daughter, he would eat a bundt cake for lunch, an entire bundt cake to himself, and the rumor was that he had two pairs of pants for with every costume that he did in the late 90s. One was his pre-bundt cake pair of pants, and the other was his post-bundt cake pair of pants, which I guess is like a size larger in the waist. And by the way, if you're wondering what is the most number of beers Andre the Giant ever consumed in one sitting, the number is 153. Sounds like a cartoony number, but if you Google a photo of Andre the Giant holding a can of beer, you'll see that it is literally like the size of his thumb. Andre the Giant died at the age of 43 in the early 1990s, I think 1993. He died of the same disease that made him so huge. It's a problem with the pituitary gland called called acromegaly or acromeglia. Toward the end of his life, of course, he was still fucking gigantic. And, and so in all of his movie roles, he was like the towering brute who would lift a car or hoist a woman up by, you know, her belt. But in reality, in like those final years of his life, he could barely like lift his arms over his head. He was so weakened by the sort of deteriorative condition that he had. He's a surprisingly interesting character. Apparently Samuel Beckett lived on a farm near the place where Andre the Giant was growing up, and when Sam Beckett was like already a decorated novelist, he would drive on a young Andre the Giant to school in his truck, because Andre the Giant couldn't fit on the bus. I don't know if that's true, but it does double down on the idea that, I, that well, I mean, Andre the Giant is just a really interesting character. I think surprisingly interesting, because he comes across often, or he's depicted in movies as like a shuffling, knuckle-dragging troglodyte who can barely speak. If you ever stumble on a documentary about Andre the Giant, it's worth checking out, or just the Wikipedia page, that's interesting too. But anyways, 
So Al Pacino is doing this publicity tour for The Irishman, and he gets asked this question, why have you been in such terrible movies for the past decade? And he says the reason he did all these bad movies is because they were easy jobs, for one thing, and they paid okay. But mostly, he said, like, on receiving a shitty script, there is a kind of thrill in wondering whether he can give us like a performance that might be so good or so over the top that it elevates the material. Which is fair enough. I'm not sure if that's true either. I'm just saying a bunch of things <laughs> Everything I'm saying today is just something I heard. It reminds me that we're talking about Al Pacino and like taking sweet gigs that don't demand very much of him. Mario Puzo, the guy who wrote both the novel and the screen adaptation of The Godfather, that fucking movie made him so goddamn famous that toward the end of his career, he was, he was, he was being paid a million dollars just to edit screenplays, just to page through them and touch up the dialogue. And when I first heard about that as a teenager, I was like, Jesus, fuck, what a sweet gig. I want that job. But then I realized, like, it was, it's probably also because the studio's they were giving him that money and that screenplay, even if he didn't do anything with it, they wanted to legitimately be able to say, ah, here's our new movie with a screenplay by John Smith and Godfather creator Mario Puzo. Which, I mean, if it teaches you anything, it just goes to show that when it comes to show business, you only need to get it right once. The musician Don McLean, who wrote the song American Pie, was like, bye bye Miss American Pie, drove a Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. Someone asked him in an interview, hey, Don McLean, what is your favorite thing about American Pie? To which McLean answered, that I never have to work again. I would hate to be a one-hit wonder as an artist, like, especially if that one hit was, like, the first thing I ever did. But I think it might be worth it if I could then have a second hit that came in the form of, like, a really pithy quote like that. What's your favorite thing about your iconic song, American Pie? That I never have to work again. That is such a brilliant line. I would like to say something really pithy like that to the press one day, and then everybody in my hometown would celebrate me for my wittiness, and I would be talked about in the newspaper, and I would be able to clip out those references and enjoy those articles and save them because the Herald will still have not canceled my fucking subscription. Mm -hmm.